Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Howdy. <laughs> Just trying something new. <laughs> That's fair. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurungai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So, Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I've been good. I've just been... See, this question always blindsides me. I have no idea why, but... uh, Because we, like, don't really do anything. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I'm going well. You can just say you're good. Okay, well, how are you? I'm sick. Oh, no, still? Yeah. I mean, last, last week when we were recording, I mentioned that I was a bit ill. I actually had an ear infection, which was not fun, which I've pretty much recovered from, but now my throat's, like kind of itchy and I'm coughing up a bit of like the phlegm and stuff and it's just a bit gross and also my voice keeps breaking so I'm a bit concerned about how this recording is gonna go because I'm struggling to speak for long periods of time if any of you were on my live yesterday you would have noticed that I literally just could not speak so we'll see hopefully it's fine but other than that I'm fine well that's good yeah let's get to some follow-up for today because I've actually got quite a bit I'll start with International Women's Day because that was yesterday uh, as of the time that we're recording. And look, to be honest, I don't care too much about International Women's Day most of the time because it's been so corporatized and co-opted by white feminism, as a lot of you already know. Um, But I wanted to bring it up because I put up a post on Instagram just being like, you know, happy International Women's Day to like XYZ marginalized women. This day is for you too. And it blew the fuck up, like, so unexpectedly uh, to the point where, at the moment, at the morning after that I've posted it, it's getting about a 1,000 likes maybe every hour. It's, like, actually better. It's absurd. It's so absurd. Yeah. I have no idea why. I mean, it's a point, but it's not a new point, and it's certainly not even that radical compared to what we normally do. But you know what? I never really know what's going to go off until it does. Um, I'm just very lucky because before, like last night, Mitch and I were out with a friend and I turned commenting off so that only people who follow me or people I follow can comment because it was getting a bit out of control. And I was like, I cannot sit on my phone for the next three hours moderating. Like I also have a life and I'm very glad I did because then I went to bed and I came online the next morning and there were 20,000 more likes and shares. So very glad. It's also come with a lot of trolling as is the norm these days, but, um, you know, this is a very slight tangent, but I kind of want to do an episode in the future with Mitch about like the gendered nature of trolling because something that's not doesn't surprise me, but is interesting and a talking point is that despite the fact that a lot of people are really tr- like upset that I didn't specifically uh, mention white women, like in that particular phrase uh, in my post that people are coming in and saying that I excluded white women, but it's like not really white women that are saying that it's men. And not necessarily white men, just men. It is like very much men that are like using this as an opportunity to troll me. And I find it interesting because these men are obviously not pro-women's rights or pro-women or pro-white women or whatever. Like even in their responses to me, it's very misogynistic. It's quite violent. Um, they obviously have a problem with women. 
And it's like, how are you out here trying to co-opt some random thing about International Women's Day in order to spread your own misogyny? But I think it's really interesting that even a post about women, like men are coming to the defense of white women and using it as an opportunity to be misogynist. Well, these men, like these reactionary misogynist men, they don't stand for anything. They will just pick anything they possibly can to just belittle uh, a woman on the internet. You know what I mean? Yeah, pretty much, I think. But yeah, it definitely was interesting. And maybe we can do an episode about it in the future. But, I mean, my favourite part of that whole experience is, like, quite a few trolls told me to get a real job slash get a career so that I'm not boring everybody on Instagram, which I think is really funny because this is, like, literally my career. (laughs) Honey, I'm paid for these opinions, but that's okay. Anyway, just a last note on International Women's Day. A lot of people have been talking about the history of International Women's Day and a few people messaged me as well about it. Um, Clementine Ford has a really really great highlight on her Instagram stories on her profile about the socialist history of International Women's Day and how it was initially like an anti-capitalist holiday for like socialist women and one of the key creators of it is also in like against white supremacy so really important at a time where white women have kind of co-opted especially the girl boss culture stuff has co-opted International Women's Day I definitely suggest you check it out. Moving on from International Women's Day Probably the biggest thing that everybody is talking about at the moment is the Megan Harry. Is it Megan? I think she actually said Megan in the interview. And I've been saying Megan this whole time. Maybe I'm going to switch to Megan. Let's do that. Megan, Harry and Oprah had a tell-all interview about basically how fucking racist and problematic the royal family is. Which is, I mean, of no surprise to us. But it's it was a bombshell just because nobody ever really says these things out loud. Well, tell all except for the things that they refuse to tell. <laughs> Yeah, noticeably from Harry, I felt. Um, We'll do next week an actual proper podcast episode diving into the interview and also into the parallels that Meghan has with Princess Diana. But I do want to issue a little statement for everybody to hold their horses a bit in the sense that I think a lot of people are like, yes, woke King Harry because he recognised that people were racist to his wife. And I'm like, okay, it's good that he did that, but let's not jump to these labels just yet okay we're gonna we're gonna have a very good discussion about it next week but don't worry we have not forgotten about the whole megan bombshell situation we have a lot to say i feel like the whole thing just made me i just couldn't stop thinking about how absurd of a tradition this is like what a strange facet of our culture that is taken very seriously that the royal family and their lives are And I think a lot of people, especially in our generation who didn't necessarily grow up in Princess Diana times, are definitely kind of just like, wait, why the fuck is the royal family still a thing? Like, what what is their relevance again? Explain, please. And also, there were so many ads when we watched it. It reminds me why I don't watch broadcast television anymore, because it's it's painful. Yeah, it was. I'm pretty sure we had just as much ad time as like screen time. Oh, yeah. If not more. It was pretty absurd. But anyway, we'll get on to that in more detail next week. The last thing that I'm going to bring up, and it's because quite a few of you reached out to me actually, is um, well, we've been talking kind of sporadically in the last few weeks about the sexual assault allegations in the Liberal Party. Um, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because there was a minister that was accused of raping uh, a woman when she was 16 in the 80s, and she's no longer alive, and it's been a pretty fucked case and incredibly triggering and concerning for a lot of us that minister has just been revealed as being chris porter and the significance of that and why i'm bringing it up is because chris porter is actually the guy that we talked about quite extensively in our podcast episode a couple of weeks ago 
as somebody who has a history of being like a misogynist, the Four Corners report like did quite an intense uh, review of like his career and interview people that knew him in university. And so it's come as no surprise really that he is the alleged rapist. And I wanted to bring that up because I just think the the whole situation is so fucked when like we literally know what a monster this man is. There are plenty of women that can attest and other men that can attest to the fact that this guy is atrocious. There is an entire media report against his, you know, offences towards women. And then he came out as being an alleged rapist. And when he said, no, I didn't do it, the entire government was like, okay. And there is going to be no investigation into whether or not he actually did it. Scott Morrison is refusing to do an external review into the situation. And I just think it is a very, very solid reminder of how much our government doesn't give a fuck. And I think this is important because then it was International Women's Day yesterday and so many people from the Liberal Party were posting, you know, posts about International Women's Day. There was some minister who was, like, very much misogynist that was handing out roses to women on the street for International Women's Day... And it's like, we don't want your fucking roses. We want you to stop women being raped in parliament. It's just, it's so absurd. And just, I think, a good reminder for everybody to not rely on the Australian government for fucking anything. And just a good reminder on, like, how completely, not just incompetent, but dangerous our ruling class is and how we very much need to be their enemies. But anyway, I think I'll finish the follow-up on that. Let's talk about today's topic. Today we're going to be talking about the politicising of the bodies and identities of women of colour, but also in relation to what that means when it comes to self-commodification. Don't worry, we're going to explain what that is. Uh, But we'll be talking about the way that we project an idea of wokeness onto women of colour. The kind of assumptions that we make on women of colour because they are women of colour. And we're going to talk about the self-branding that comes with that, especially when you're a woman of colour in the media uh, and the way we kind of have to commodify or sell our political identities in a way that kind of seems counterintuitive to our anti-capitalist beliefs. Mitch is going to give y'all some academic theory on how self-commodification works and I'll contextualise it with real-life experiences of myself uh, and other women of colour in the media and the kind of conversations that we've had because I think this is actually really relevant, really interesting conversation topic that Mitch and I have been wanting to do for a while. Since the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, literally since we started the podcast, it's been in our list of things we want to talk about. And to do a few things that have happened in the media lately, I think it's actually very relevant at the moment. So I'm keen. Let's get into it. I think I'm going to start this topic by going back to a podcast episode that I did with Flex Mommy a few months ago. I think it aired in January, but I was on an episode on Flex Mommy's semi-factual history lessons on Spotify where we talked about hair, but I don't think it, it meant to go in that direction, but we kind of ended up just talking about the politicizing of black women's hair and just how political being a black woman is, especially when you have natural hair, which is something that Flex Mommy obviously can talk about significantly. Um, and something that she said that I find really interesting, which is probably going to be the jumping board, the diving board of today's conversation, is when she discussed her hair and kind of when she used to wear weaves and wigs and she transitioned to natural hair and all the questions that she got. And she was just like, is my hair a political statement? Am I inferring how much I like myself based on how natural I allow my hair to be? Like, why is everything so deep? I just want to vibe, but I feel like there are so many meanings 
pushed onto me depending on what kind of hair that I have. Um, and we kind of talk about how, I mean, you all know that black women's hair is political. This is why things like culture variation with braids exist because we live in a society that is built on the subjugation of like black people, especially during slavery and cutting hair, mutilating hair was a way to subjugate black women and black slaves. And also black hair was used not just in terms of like cultural representation and like being yourself, but also people braided in like maze-like patterns to show escape routes through tunnels. Like there was just really ingenuous and creative ways of using black hair. So there is like very much a political element to black hair that I'm not saying doesn't exist, but our conversation was interesting because we talked about the projection of ideology onto black women's hair. And a really kind of, I think, common example of that is when Flex was telling me that, because she used to work in like corporate kind of environments uh, in like PR and media and stuff. And she used to dress pretty creatively and she always had like really colorful hair and changed her hairstyle a lot. And then one day she just kind of decided to move into like natural hair and just like change her look a bit. And she got so many questions from people asking her like what had happened, what had changed, what was the reason for this? Like, is it because of so-and-so expectations of black women? Like, blah, 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 blah. And she was like very confused by that because her other coworkers who were white women when they just like, you know, maybe they dyed their hair a different color or they got a perm or whatever. Like people would be like, oh, cool. Like just a style change. They'd be like, yeah, and that would be it. But for her, they were like ideas on what political statement she has to be making. And I think there really is a pressure to perform quote unquote wokeness all the time as women of color. And specifically for black women, I imagine this is like a lot more intense, obviously, but there is definitely an idea for us as women of color, as like marginalized groups and oppressed minorities to perform a level of political activism all the time to kind of reinforce our racial status and our stance on our racial status. What I mean by this, it's something that I come across a lot myself as well. It's an idea that because we kind of are different to the status quo that we must have really insightful and wise things to say and that everything we do must be in response and like in resistance to the status quo. The projection of wokeness onto women of color from white women, it often happens because they see us as like nothing more than symbols of our like own existence as like this race. Like I am not me. I am a symbol of brown women. I am proof that we exist And I must uphold certain standards to remind everybody that we exist in a way that is politically acceptable in the left wing movement for white women who, you know, want to be woke and supportive. And it comes like, I think, not necessarily from actively racist or problematic angles, but there's definitely a like, I want to support you as a woman of color. Please talk to me about your hijab. And it's like, I don't want to talk to some random white woman about why I wear a hijab. Like, you don't know me. You're not going to understand. You're going to assume that the reason that I give you is the reason that every woman who wears a hijab is wearing one. You're going to generalize this. You're going to paint us all with the same brush. And I don't want to be complicit in that. Anyway, the reason that I'm bringing kind of all of this up is because it's really starting to come in the limelight in media conversations a lot in ways that I think are somewhat new. I think intersectional feminism is obviously kind of becoming a bit of a buzzword and people are in a good way, I guess, being more exposed to it in a bad way, potentially co-opting it and like making it what it's not. But there's definitely been a higher consciousness lately of the different standards that we hold women of color to in the media. 
Uh, and a really good example of that, which is what I want to talk about right now, is Lizzo. This is not exactly a fresh news story, but I've been thinking about it for quite some time. Lizzo uh, is often seen as a face of self-love. You know, she is a fat black woman who is proudly a fat black woman who doesn't give a fuck, right? And it's like she's very much about body positivity and loving yourself and empowerment and not needing to change for anybody. And she's done a lot for the body positivity movement. I think this is an issue. She's not necessarily the face of it. No individual can be the face of a movement, in my opinion. But it is something that Lizzo has kind of been pushed upon, like that's been pushed upon her by her followers, who are not necessarily women of colour themselves. Um, recently, uh, maybe a few months ago, Lizzo was doing a smoothie cleanse, like a 10-day smoothie cleanse thing that she posted about on Instagram, and she was absolutely vilified for it. She was called out for promoting diet culture. She was shamed for betraying the body positive movement. There was so much hate and anger and disappointment and devastation just directed towards her for doing a 10-day smoothie cleanse. And something that bothered me about that is, first of all, that I don't really think there's anything wrong with, like, just doing a 10-day smoothie cleanse. Like, it'd be different if she was selling you, like, a tummy tea that is, like, designed to make you lose weight in three hours or whatever it is that these influencers are selling lately. But she was just, like, doing something for herself and talking about it because, of course, she talks about her life on her Instagram. And people freaked out. And I was just thinking, like, she's not going to do this 10-day smoothie cleanse and then no longer be who she is. She's not going to suddenly be a skinny woman because she did a 10... Like, it doesn't actually affect her identity in any capacity. But people were really upset and they felt betrayed. And that is the key word here because I'm just like, who? you don't know her. Like, we follow her on Instagram. We like what she stands for, but you don't know her and she doesn't owe you anything. Especially the body positive movement. Like, y'all have aligned, but she is not the creator of your movement. She is not, you know... She doesn't see herself as the face of your movement. You projected this ideal onto her and then you got upset when she didn't deliver. Um, and I think that's really important because we're seeing it increasingly with women of colour all the time because, like, Lizzo's body is not a political playground for other people to, like, battle on their body-positive discussions over, especially because not long before that, Adele randomly came out having lost a lot of weight and I would say that the responses to her were mixed pretty 50-50. Some people, one half, were really upset because they felt, again, that she had betrayed them by losing weight because they were supposed to all be in this together and now she's gone and become skinny and that's not fair. And then the other half were like, everybody fuck off. It's her life. It's her body. You don't even know why she lost weight. We just saw a photo and she's like, lost weight now. You have no idea what the reasons were. Like, back off, leave her alone. Lizzo was almost all entirely negative feedback which 100% was racially motivated because we hold black women to a higher standard than everybody else. But the interesting part was like the assumption that she was part of these movements, that she is indebted to these movements and to these people and to these fans and that she owes them and that she must not be woke anymore because she did a 10-day smoothie cleanse. And I guess we can have a conversation on why we project these ideals onto people and specifically women of color all the time and we hold them to those standards and then we get upset when they don't meet those standards and I think for women of color and the reason I'm singling us out because I know this happens to everybody is branding because to get anywhere in the media right now as a woman of color you have to 
kind of commodify your race, you have to commodify your politics because people don't care about a woman of color unless she's controversial in some aspect. I can definitely speak about that in my own kind of reflections as well. Like I most often write about race, race and anti-capitalism, but mostly about race. And people also want me to write about race because that is the kind of situation that I've been kind of pigeonholed in. Like I am that brown girl who writes about race in The Bachelor, you know, and now that I have written that thing and I've talked about it, this is who I am now. This is my branding. This is like what my work is. And if I want to pitch anywhere, if I want to get articles written anywhere, I need to pitch from the angle of being controversial in my discussions around race because that is my branding. And this branding this self-commodification of my because like like think about it for a second with race and me i am not inherently political for being brown although i mean we can argue and this is a conversation that i had in flex mommy's podcast of the inherent politicized nature of the bodies of literally anyone that's not white and not a man um but i am seen inherently as being political because i exist right because in in and of itself, me being brown, being a woman, being Muslim in like a colonial country, like it is a form of resistance to even just exist in a society that has kind of committed time to eradicating you. Um, that like my existence is seen as resistance, uh, even when I'm not trying to be that way. And so when I'm out here just talking about race, not because I'm like trying to talk about race but because it's literally just my lived experience like I'm I'm brown I'm gonna be talking about racism because I've obviously experienced it and it's just who I am that is immediately politicized and seen as me like talking about race you know it's like me starting these divisive controversial conversations and it's like I probably already would do this anyway but now I'm gonna jump on it and kind of turn it into my brand Because it's the only way that I'm going to get ahead in a society that isn't that interested in women of color unless we have that race edge to us. Well, it's sort of like, would you say there's this idea of the stereotypical angry brown woman, which is, you know, completely racist. But it's almost like, would you say you have to almost adopt that stereotype to get anywhere in the media? Because you can't do anything that's too subversive. Because then that would just be pushed aside. But if you embrace that stereotype, then maybe people will recognize it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, I mean, I very much, even in my writings, have like talked about being the angry brown woman stereotype and being the aggressive brown woman stereotype. And I've talked about that because, I mean, I guess I am that. But also there's completely a market for it at the moment. Okay, this is a slight tangent, but people, especially white people, really kind of want, there's a bit of like trauma voyeurism when it comes to diaspora writing. Like there really is an interest in angry brown girls like me writing think pieces on mangoes and colonialism. This poetic trauma, you know, kind of conversations. White people eat that shit up. Like it is so interesting to them because it's so alien to them. It's very other. That you see things and you see racism where other people wouldn't. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's honestly fascinating to people, which maybe isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I'm not saying it reflects badly on people, but the point is... It's a brand. It's a brand. It's a brand. There's a market for this niche that I'm fulfilling. And I'm aware of that. And I think in this day and age, you kind of can't not be aware of that. Like in a society, we're in late stage capitalism at the moment. And then on top of that, everything is online and social media. And given the way that media structures have changed over time, anyone can kind of just post stuff online and potentially make it. Some people have more chances than others, obviously, given privileges. But the really kind of interesting and democratizing thing about internet 
is anybody can put stuff on there. Um, and now that there's so many competing voices, you kind of have to have an edge. You have to have a niche. You have to have something about you that is different. And when you're already otherized, the woman of color, that actually comes kind of easy. When you're already otherized as an angry brown woman, they're just like, you know what? I am an angry brown woman. Tis true. It's a racist stereotype, but I fulfill it. And I guess people kind of want to listen to me because of that, because it's different, because it's interesting, because it opens people's perspectives, because I talk about things I don't typically hear about from other white people. Like I have fulfilled a niche and it's kind of fucked how like really I'm commodifying the racism that I experience and turning it into a career. I'm talking about my experiences just as a brown woman, which are not that different to every other brown woman, but because I have a platform and I'm able to talk about it and I have the writing and articulation skills to really put that out there, now I have a career. And I think, you know, probably a really good exemplifier of that is a couple of years ago when I wasn't let into that bar in uh, Circular Key because I was wearing a hijab. Like that is actually the event that kind of kickstarted my career in like a really fucked up way. Like it was traumatizing for me, obviously, I don't think I've been to a like kind of pub situation since then, really, because I'm like scared of it and I'm stressed and I feel like people are going to racially attack me. Traumatizing experience, but also after that happened and it went viral in news media, a lot of publications reached out to me for commentary because they were interested in like what I would have to say about it because this is this like really controversial thing that happened and I'm a marginalized voice that is often, especially in Australian media, not heard. Like, Muslim women are almost non-existent in Australian media, more so than a lot of other marginalised groups. So it was, like, edgy and controversial. And I, and I said, okay, and I wrote about my experiences for a bunch of publications and I got paid a lot of money for it. And then I had a career because now people recognise me as that brown girl who's somewhat eloquent when she, come, when she talks about race. Um, and then I got put in this niche and then people reach out to me now when they want me to talk about race. And then eventually, cause a lot of people found me that way through social media. I started to develop a following because people were interested in what I had to say about the situation. Then I started this Instagram page. I started talking about racism in the bachelor. And then like we started a podcast because a lot of people were messaging me like, Hey, I find your thoughts really interesting on like X, Y, Z racing that I haven't thought about. Maybe you guys should do something. And I was like, yeah, Mitch, like let's, I mean, it was Mitch's idea actually to start this podcast. He was like, we should start a podcast. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do a podcast with you. And here we are. This is like literally my career right now. Like I have two years writing experience in journalism where I mostly talk about race. I have a podcast where I mostly talk about race and I get paid for it. And it's kind of wild to me that I get paid to discuss my racial traumas and that those racial traumas are actually very valuable commodities to me. Yeah, something I find interesting about what you're saying in the way that we are interested in the struggle of media figures that are, you know, anything that isn't a straight white male, because it is inherently becomes political, apparently. Like, if you've listened to this podcast, you'll know that we think that everything is political. Like, we, we will find the politics and everything because we really believe that. But then I think sometimes it can go the opposite way, like with Lizzo, which is, you know, every black person has to use their platform to talk about politics and has to be the next Martin Luther King or they're betraying us uh, and not using their platform or betraying uh, yeah, well, their political status, apparently. Yeah, well, they're seen as not doing enough. And that's something that I've experienced as well. I remember a while back, I had a white woman who has a following on Instagram message me, tell me that I don't do enough to uplift marginalized voices because we don't have guests on our podcast. 
and we should be having a guest every week that is a different monstrous woman every week. And I was just like, what? We like record out of Mitch's dining table. Like the- we don't have <laughs> this we isn't are, a studio yeah like, like we are two amateurs who do a podcast mostly for fun you know we make a bit of money out of it um through our donations from you lovely listeners on our patreon and stuff but this is definitely not something i live off <laughs> this is something that i do more for other people than i do for myself um and i just found it so incredible that a white woman can come to me an actual marginalized person who whose entire career and platform is built on talking about racism and tell me that I don't do enough. And I'm like, who, what have you ever done? But there isn't an expectation for a lot of white women, especially ones of platforms to really be political. And like white women have the choice to opt out of politics. They have the choice to be like, that is not my area of expertise. I'm just a, you know, model. I'm just a this. I'm just a that. I don't have to talk about these things. I don't know much about them. That's not my life experience. And that's like just okay. Like they get the choice to opt out of these situations. But people like me can never do enough. You're a political person. Yeah. You have to be. I have to be. And not just that, but I have to be political to an impossible standard. You know, there's no understanding that like I have a life. And I work three jobs. I do this podcast. I work in a media job. I work in retail. I also run the Instagram. There's all stuff that I just do for like myself. And I have other things in my life that I need to prioritize, especially things that give me an income to survive on. Um, And I find it so like it is quite upsetting and unfair because I'm like, this is 100% because I'm brown. And there is an expectation that I have to do the absolute fucking work. And I have to liberate every other brown woman out there. And until I've done that, I will never be doing enough. And I'm just like, this is like not my life. <laughs> I I mean, that was just like one woman's comment, but I've been thinking about it for ages actually because it just like the audacity of it really amazed me and just like the lack of self-awareness of it as well. Like the idea that you are not in the DMs of fucking Kylie Jenner telling her she needs to be more political and she's got fucking billions, right? And here I am, somebody on Instagram, I'm literally like 22. I've only been in the media for like a year. I have a very small following of like four or 5,000 people on Instagram and only, you know, a percentage of you guys listen to the podcast. Like this is not, I am not somebody with a large platform. Very much, we're like a very insulated bubble, our little community over here. Um, In Australia even, we're not even like, you know, we're like in this tiny little subset of Sydney having this conversation between Mitch and I on a dining table. Uh, And so it's just, there really is these projections of wokeness, but also these like impossible projections of wokeness these impossible ideas that are just not, it's not feasible. Like nobody can do everything. We all, especially women of color who also on top of like any activism we do, which is inherently going to bring up trauma for us. It's inherently going to be emotionally taxing to constantly talk about our racial experiences. Like after the Paragon hotel thing, I had somebody from the project reach out to me asking me if I could be on the project in two hours. And I was like, look, I've done like seven interviews today. I am, I'm also at work <laughs> for doing them in my lunch break. I just don't think I'm up for it. And she was really shocked, again, a white woman, and was like, but, like, you know, you could really uplift marginalized voices by doing that. Like, you could really bring a platform to people like you. And I was like, yeah, but I'm tired. You know, I like, I'm probably just going to cry on TV if this happens. Like, I'm not capable of this situation. You're asking a lot of me right now. It's literally been, like, three – like, I can't do this. This is too much. And then she, I mean, she was nice about it and apologized and was like, you know what? Sometimes I forget when you're running all these stories that the stories are real people. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) fucking, yeah, you do forget. But 
the point of that tangent is to show that like it's also we're held to a higher standard while also having a higher amount of barriers as well like me talking about my racial trauma is inherently going to be more exhausting than like somebody else talking about it because it's my experience and it happened to me and it was real and it was jarring and it was scary and I had to like deal with a lot especially for me like Mitch and I run this podcast but who do you think gets trolled I do exactly like who do you think gets all the hate I do who do you think gets attacked nobody gives a fuck about like Mitch saying whatever he wants but this is a white man and he can just like do this podcast and it's just a thing that he does but because I, when I'm on this podcast I'm seen as the problem the aggressor and it's just like there is a lot at stake emotionally for somebody like me to be in the position that I am. And I am even I'm not even like super popular. You know what I mean? Like I don't even have a huge I don't even know. I can't even imagine what it's like for other women of color who have like hundreds of thousands of followers. Which like, is why all those likes on that photo was both in some way a blessing in and expanding a an audience <laughs> and then also a curse. Yeah, because yeah. with with an expansion of audience comes trolls. And I don't even people like Lizzo, I mean, who is obviously fucking mega famous. And, like, all these people who have been loyal fans up until now completely turned on her and were fucking vicious over a smoothie. Like, what the actual fuck? And this is our lives. And Lizzo already deals with so much hate, so much fat phobia, so much anti-black. Like, literally every every kind of ism on the sun you could think of she's experiencing. And I'm just like me, who is, you know, my troubles are far less significant. And I struggle to cope with it all the time. Like, it always feels like too much because... I'm constantly expected to bring so much candidness to my life experiences and I'm always expected to share it all and that's already a huge ask on its own to just open up all the time about every bad thing I've ever experienced and then on top of that I'm expected to also uplift every other woman and if I fail to uplift one I have failed completely and I should just give up my career which is like I mean individuals that maybe believe in cancel culture but still it's just it's a level of impossibility that women of color experience the most out of every like group of people i'm actually going to bring this back to flex mommy a bit because she did an interview recently with the guardian that i find a, to be a very interesting case study uh in terms of what we're talking about with projection of wokeness onto women of color and the way that we have to self-commodify that i'm going to read you two very interesting quotes from this article and just to give you a bit of context the article is about Flex Mommy announcing that she will no longer be an influencer. And that is a big deal because Flex has very much talked very candidly in the past about being an influencer and kind of embraced it. When we, I mean, even Mitch and I, we often say influencer with a bit of a ugh, influencer. Like, yeah, I'm not an influencer. But Flex Mommy's always really embraced that. And it's been a, a controversial part of her brand for sure uh, because a lot of her audience is from the Bird Boy and Flex podcast, which is like an anti capitalist podcast. So. It's spicy, like she often describes herself as capitalism's handmaiden um, and is maybe not as anti-capitalist as a lot of us are. And I think it's garnered a lot of controversial kind of criticisms for her. So it is a big deal that she's announcing that she's opting out of influencing after she's really kind of talked it up quite a bit in the past. So here are two quotes that I think, I'll start with the first one. Maybe Mitch and I can break down the first one and then I'll read the second one. Sure. Okay. I speak at length about racism because I don't have the privilege not to, she says, adding that her Ghanaian heritage has a huge impact on her lived experience. It impacts what I'm trying to communicate, what I'm trying to do, the permissions I have to be in certain spaces. That gets packaged as she's doing activism and it's odd because she's also doing capitalism. Flex says in response to a question, I ask her about doing both things at once. But the only thing I'm doing is being and monetizing myself. The idea that she's an activist is just another projection, albeit a positive one from my end. 
So that is a quote. Very interesting. A very interesting quote, which is actually, Mish and I were reading this article and we were like, wow, this is literally what we've been talking about forever. But it's just this idea that like Flex was put into a box the moment she spoke at length about racism. She was put into a box as this woke, left-leaning, anti-capitalist black woman who was out here. And she speaks about it extensively in the article, people referring to her as the protector of blackness, the protector of black women. She's always been very vocal about the issues she has with people projecting ideals onto her. Like she has always said, don't expect things off me. I'm not what you think I am. Like stop expecting all these things. I have never said I will do those things. I don't want to be perceived that way. This is not the real me and I don't really care if you have a problem with it. And it's been something she's been quite honest about in the past. Which I've, and I've always just found the whole situation very fascinating because, I mean, I studied media in university and I, and I am very interested in influencer culture. This is what we talk about very specifically, you know, the way media culture and social media has influenced the way people even perceive themselves and express themselves, which is exactly what Flex Mommy is talking about here. Yeah, and so when she talks about speaking about racism because she doesn't have the privilege not to speak about it because she's literally a black woman in Australia. Like, naturally, she's just going to talk about her life and racism is going to appear. But because of that, people are like, oh, oh, so you're you're like going to pretend that you work, but I thought, like, you're okay with capitalism, though. Like, don't you, don't you sell clothes that are, like, not sustainable? Like, don't you do X, Y, Z, non-woke things? Oh, but you want to talk about racism now, the hypocrisy. And it's like, she's black. Like, naturally, she's going to talk about racism and it is not a commentary on where she stands on the political spectrum. The same way that we have a lot of conservative people that are black and people find that really confusing. But it's like people are quite complex and have like really different ideas in the world depending on what their experiences are. And you can't just assume that somebody is going to agree with everything you said because they're black and you see that as like woke, quote unquote. You can't just like walk up to a black person on the street and be like, hey, comrade, you know what I mean? You don't know who they are. Like, there, there isn't, it's not inherent, you know? Yeah. But that's how people well, act online. That's I mean, what people expect. People have done that to me kind of in person, to be honest, not comrade. But like, <laughs> I've definitely had people come up to me at random events and start talking to me with an assumption on what my politics are because I wear a hijab. Like, people have just assumed she wears a hijab, she must believe X, Y, Z, and start talking to me like, like I do. And sometimes they will assume that I'm like left wing, which is correct. But sometimes I get people saying like, or talking to me and like saying homophobic things really casually because they think I'll agree because that is their perception of Muslim women, you know? And so it's just like, you can't just assume, like it's just, that's just racism, plain and simple, really. But I think kind of the key part of this quote is that she says, people are accusing her of doing activism and also doing capitalism. But the only thing she's doing is being and monetizing herself. And that is of interest to Mitch and I as media students because that's what self-commodification is. Actually, Mitch, do you want to jump in and maybe give a little explainer on self-commodification? Yes, like that's exactly why I wanted to do this episode because I just find commodification and the way it works just so interesting because it's something that we talk about a lot and it's a word that we've used on the podcast. Probably every episode we talk about how things are commodified, how capitalism commodifies stuff. But we've never really got into the process of what that actually means, you know, at at a deeper level. Commodification, and you can get pretty far with just this definition, is just the way capitalism turns things into products, the way capitalism comes to sell things. And in all of the times that we've used it, if you just know that, you'll get pretty far and understand exactly what we're saying. But there's actually a deeper sort of process that's going on, which I think explaining it will really help clarify and articulate what's actually going on when things become commodified. 
I'll use just a, a random analogy. Let's say that I'm feeling particularly sentimental one day, and I decide that I want to get Saliha, you know, a bouquet of flowers. Oh. And let's say that instead of going and buying one, I went out to a field nearby. Oh, yeah, and cute. I and I picked a bunch of of random flowers that I found. I hope this actually happens. So, anyways, um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm he just I'm, completely ignored me. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I'll stop interrupting your analogy. <laughs> so I, I I cut the flowers, I arrange them, I put them in some nice paper, and I present them to you. And I'm like, you know, I made these these flowers, I made you this bouquet. Uh, from this field because, you know, I want to express this thing about me. So the reason that that bouquet is meaningful is because when you see the bouquet, it's representative of the labor that I put in to construct the bouquet. Yeah, he went and picked it himself. Yeah. He, like, thought about the things that I like and he tried to personalize it. And I'm like, wow, so thoughtful. And the labor of me actually going to the field, the work that I put in, is inscribed into the bouquet in a way. And also... If I tell you where I got the flowers from, um, it is connected to a physical place in the world. So I would say, and this will make more sense, that, that is not a commodity. But what happens if I go to a florist or the supermarket to get a bouquet of flowers? Go to Woolies. If I go to Woolies to get eleven dollar bouquet of roses. Eleven dollars. <laughs> if I get the the five dollar sunflower. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not even going to get the eleven dollar one. <laughs> um. So if I get those flowers and I present it to you, it's still a very nice gesture, you know, that I, I thought to do it. But those flowers have become disconnected from any real re- reality. I don't know the person that cut the flowers. I don't know the person that arranged them. I don't know where the flowers came from. So they have been stripped of their context. Well, you didn't really perform any labor, did you? And I don't know where the labor was performed. they the labor doesn't presumably, exist. Yeah, presumably there was someone involved in the creation of this bouquet. But when I see it, when I see this uh, this bouquet, I don't even acknowledge that labor. And that is how something becomes a commodity. So when we say that something is commodified, it is when an item, or in some cases an idea, or is, an experience. is stripped from its context and its reality. That's kind of what I mean then when I talk about like my, for example, racial traumas being commodified in my career as somebody who talks about race. The whole situation has been stripped of like the emotional kind of elements that went into it, the actual human experience that I had that was kind of traumatizing, you know, my feelings in the matter. Like the fact that there's something that happened to me is gone. It is actually just an experience for other people now to come and pick on and dissect and talk about like I'm not a real person with real feelings it's just about the intensity of the experience in and of itself not connected to any real broader context but it's about how can we neatly package this trauma and the racial aspects of it into a cute little article yeah Mm. so when we talk about how black culture has been commodified how hip-hop has been commodified it's because we're talking in a way about how the origins of hip-hop has been split you know cut away from the picture and how we've made it neat and nicely packaged for general consumption. Yeah, and I mean, that's, f- that's like, we talk about a lot of these examples all the time, but I mean, even like race is becoming commodified now with things like Bridgerton that completely cuts out, you know, the racial history and trauma that is necessary to tell a story of colonialism and they've packaged it into a cute little, like, look at us having black people in our show, we're so woke. Like, this is commodification. They are like considered woke because they just like cut out a very specific element of blackness that they enjoy and they put it in the show that they make money off. And when the turmeric latte gets commodified, it's because it's cut off from its deep existence 
as then, like you know a historical thing that Indian people were yes. colonized over. So it's cut off that from that historical existence and is just valued as an object in and of itself and because of its potentially positive benefits and symbolic value. Yeah. And like, because the emotional context and history of things is important. Like humans aren't really interesting if we kind of ignore all the emotional elements that kind of make us who we are and make our history what it is. I mean, the only reason that my stories about racism are valuable is because of the emotional reactions that they can elicit, right? But not for me. So I just tell the story and then the value here is when white women read it and go, oh my goodness, can't believe somebody would do that to you when their best friend is probably racist. But you know, like this is what we mean by commodify. And it's, I guess the reason we're talking about this whole commodification thing and bringing it back to kind of this article is like, that is a lot of emotional labor to take on and to be expected to be able to handle as like an individual and as like a woman of color, because most women of color have some kind of racial trauma that they can talk about. Um, And so we talk about commodifying ourselves. We talk about how we have to package our racial experiences and feelings beautifully and pretty and we have to make it nice and we have to market it to the right people so that we can get a foot in the door so that we can actually talk about what our racial experiences really are. But those experiences, because you do that, have become disconnected from you as a person. They almost are external to you. They are cut off from your reality and everything that goes on in your life. And it's just this experience as it is. Yeah. And then there's something that I actually was thinking about a lot. It was actually Michelle from the Shameless podcast that inspired this in my head because I wrote a few columns for them a while ago and I was pitching a column about my grandma passing away. And because there is this pressure, especially when you're a woman of color, to sell your trauma. Like there is this pressure to like, make everything content. Every time something happens to me, racially or not, I need to figure out a way to turn it into an article so I can stay relevant and have a platform and talk about things. And I was kind of pitching it to her and she was like, you know what? You don't have to sell all your stories. Like she just said that to me. She was like, you don't have to. Like you can hold that close to you if you want. And you don't have to write this story about this sad thing that happened to you like just a few months ago. It's okay to just not do that. And I was kind of shook, to be honest, because also there is obviously the dynamic of ra- of Michelle being like a white woman. There's a racial dynamic. Like I am not white. I don't often feel like I can do that. I don't often feel empowered to choose what stories I do and don't tell because there's an expectation for me to tell all my race stories because I owe it to other women of color, because I owe it to the, my audience who deserves to know these things, because how else are we going to create change unless I constantly talk about my racial trauma and humanize myself, but also in turn disconnect myself from my own humanity. And I imagine it can also feel like, what else do you have to offer? Yeah. Way, which is really depressing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what happens when you live in like a white supremacist society that only values you because of your racial trauma. Like the only thing that people want me to write about is race. And I am the only time I have ever been approached for freelance writing has been when it is an issue about race. And that makes you insecure because I'm just like, I don't even know who I am, like in terms of writing outside of that. And do I even need to be somebody outside of that? I don't know. But it's this really complicated kind of idea about self-identity because I can't even view myself outside of my own self-commodification anymore. I'm that... I'm, so far in to that kind of hole. Mm. And even if you haven't experienced any trauma, it'll just be assumed that you have because that's what makes you interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right? 100%. Yeah. 
And that's what we mean by this projecting of wokeness and racial struggle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to Flex Farmy's column. Here's another little excerpt from the column. I, I should say it's a profile because I realise I'm saying I and people will think that's me. No, this is a person who interviewed Flex Farmy. But here's, here's the quote from, from the profile. Even before the anxiety hit, Ahenkin was already planning to pivot away from commodifying myself and the benefits of the influencer lifestyle because I realised that it's not sustainable. I didn't want it to drop me before I dropped it. And if that doesn't sum up the experience of women of colour in the media who have to commodify their own experiences, particularly racially, I don't know what does. This idea that when she said, I didn't want it to drop me before I dropped it, I was just like, oh my God, like sis, oh, I feel you. I feel you right now because we're a trend right now, especially after the murder of George Floyd, like the world suddenly became interested in our stories. Specifically for her as a black woman, it's obviously far more politicized and relevant to George Floyd but even just myself the amount of people that I had suddenly interested in my opinion that would not have given a fuck two years ago was because it's it's on trend right now to listen to people of color and there is a market at the moment for things written by people of color like suddenly our voices are relevant because George Floyd's murder and the riots and protests that came up afterwards actually really shifted the social consciousness um of you know the world uh and I just think yeah, there's definitely this insecurity that I feel like she really exemplifies of like, you're just kind of waiting to lose that. You're waiting for it to disappear and you feel like you have to say yes to everything because you don't know when people will stop having an interest in this niche thing that is who you are. Um, like she talks about already kind of wanting to get away from commodifying herself, even though there are like benefits of that influencer lifestyle because it's not sustainable and it's not sustainable. Like that constant anxiety and that constant need to have to lay all your trauma cards on the table in order to get anywhere is exhausting. And also there's only so much you can talk about before you've talked about it. Like how many times can I write the same story on this, on this one thing that happened to me before like I don't know if I'm saying new things anymore and then I'm like fuck do I do I have anything else to say about the world of course I do like of course we all do but when you are so used to being pigeonholed in that way and people having this expectation of who you are supposed to be you lose sight of who you actually like could be and what I find interesting about Flex Mommy's discussion and what she's talking about when she is talking about self-commodification is that influences sort of live this strange paradoxical life where you're working, like that's your job, but you're also trying to create the impression that you're not working, that you're just living this cool creative life and you just do all these creative things. Yes, there's a real interest in authenticity. Like you and I are just having a discussion right now that we would have whether or not there were microphones in front of us and that this isn't labour. But like also it kind of is labour because we've sat here and we've like got a plan, you know, like even even just what we're doing right now where like it's not labour but it is labour. We're in like Schrodinger's well, box it is of labour. It's very, it's an, it's entirely labour yet maybe not recognised as such. And, and it's about creating the illusion that this isn't labour. To kind of wrap it up, I want to get into what we talked about with authenticity because there definitely is a pressure to be a personality but like a very specific type of personality but also to not act like you're being that type of personality, which sounds kind of complicated, but the way I want to explain it is through an experience that I had recently talking to somebody about a potential project. Um, And when I was kind of like, okay, like, what do you want from me? Like, what do you want to see from me? What is the kind of work that you want to see from me? They were like, oh, like, just be you. Like, we just want it to be authentic. Like, just like do what you already do. And I was just thinking like, but 
I don't know what that, like, what do you mean by me? I don't know what your construct of me is, you know, because you, even you guys, even you listeners, like everybody who consumes my work has a construct of who they think that I am. And maybe it's accurate and maybe it's not, but I don't know really what that construct is because I'm not a big name influencer who has like a marketing tool where I have a personality that I sell. I kind of am just in this situation and it kind of happened accidentally. And now I'm in a situation where people think that I have like a very specific brand and I know what that brand is, but I kind of don't. I, I have a brand because everybody has a brand just naturally existing under capitalism. We all commodify ourselves constantly. Like we, we all have a brand, but I haven't really figured it out. And so I always feel when I have conversations like that or these projects, like a real pressure to be a personality and a real struggle because I don't know who that personality is and I don't know what personality you guys want. And I, it comes with so much imposter syndrome because what does it mean to be authentic and to be me? Like if I was being authentic, I probably would just be on the couch right now watching Criminal Minds. Like I don't know what we mean by that. And I think, I mean, Flex talks about it a little bit as well with people kind of having a construct of who they think she is. And then if she deviates from that construct, they think she's being fake or they think she's being disingenuous or she's betraying them. And she's just trying to live. Right. And this is like exactly what I feel, especially when it comes to commercial situations where I have somebody pitching something that they want to do with me. Like we want to pay you to do something. And I'm just like, that's so cool. But also I you're not you're being so vague because you think that I know what, what you're what you're talking about. And I fucking don't. I have no idea what personality you think I have constructed. It's so complicated. And this is so because authentic doesn't exist. But I think it's important to say that even though we're talking about media figures, this is the experience of everyone nowadays. Contemporary capitalism has turned all our personalities into brands. We don't sell our physical labor anymore. We sell our knowledge. We sell our personalities. So everyone that has an Instagram account is branding themselves, is creating an image of who they are, and and they're trying to accrue social capital in some way. This is everyone. Yeah, this is universal. These you know, few figures, we see it exemplified in a very clear way, but it's everyone. Yeah. And so, and I feel like I really struggle with that because I am kind of in the middle. Like I'm not just on my personal Instagram posting around and stuff. Like this is an Instagram that people like look at and it's in somewhat of a public eye, even though it's like maybe a small subset of the public eye, it's still there. And there are still people that have a perception of me that I don't actually personally know who consume my content and then want to talk to me about it and have discussions with me about it. But like the me that they think exists that maybe does, maybe doesn't. I can't tell you because I don't know who that is. Um, and so there is like, I find that I'm in a weird position because I'm not like flex mommy. I don't have hundreds of thousands of followers. I'm not a commercial face that's seen in TV ads and I don't host like seven different podcasts. You know, I'm not famous like her. I am doing something from my partner's dining table that we do for fun, you know? And and it kind of ended up going pretty well and we met a lot of amazing people through it. And now I'm just like, okay, I feel like people are starting to expect me to have the toolkit that an influencer has when it comes to having a personal brand and knowing how to sell it. And I'm in this weird spot where I probably have a personal brand, but I don't have much control over it, or at least I don't feel like I do. And I have no idea how the fuck to sell it. And now it's just weird and difficult. And then I have white women telling me I'm not woke enough. And I'm like, ah, this is too much. This is too much. I don't know how people like Flex Mommy do it. But yeah, like I just, I think maybe the aim of this podcast episode today was I really want people to think about self-commodification and the idea of like, 
people's personalities and if they even exist and what is being sold to you. Because we're like, at the end of the day, Mitch and I are like critical anti-capitalist thinkers. Like that's what we do. This whole podcast, we always like, we bring you something and then we deconstruct it. And we're like, here's a thing. Here's the ideas it's selling you. Here's why we disagree with those ideas. You know, like that's, I feel like that's kind of our vibe a lot of the time. We're like, here's the thing. But then also here's the thing though. Right? <laughs> wow. I feel like I should have thought. I don't know how I've named this podcast. He's a thing though. And I actually never fucking say it in like any of the podcast episodes. (laughs) But anyway, yes, we're very much- That's the brand image. Okay. Well, this is what I mean where I'm terrible with brand imaging. It's like, yes, we are. Here's the thing though. That's our brand, I guess. But like- But saying that you're terrible with brand imaging makes you seem more authentic. And I can't win, can I? Because I'm always selling an idea of myself just by virtue of telling you I am something, right? Like, you just can't get anywhere. It's very difficult. It's very weird. I don't like late-stage capitalism, and I don't really like self-commodification. It's a scary place. (laughs) Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for this episode, the people who pay us. For our commodified labor. For our personality. Yeah. You, our listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So, thank you so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes and the ongoing self-commodification of our lives. (laughs) Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Official, and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and just the general space where I commodify myself as usual. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.